Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. In today's episode, I'd like to talk about the different lenses through which we view the world. And I want to begin with a story that happened just a week ago. I had been invited to share nonviolent communication with a group of First Nations peoples. And what I do in every workshop is ask participants to write down a list of needs, to generate their own list of needs. And I want to tell you what I discovered. And this is not the first time that I've seen this, but I just thought it would be worth sharing. There were words on the list that the people put together that do not appear on the lists when I'm working with other, we'll say, settler types. And these words are ceremony, elders, knowledge keepers, ancestors, teachings, etiquette. Also, what was fascinating was what was missing from the list. Ease, comfort, the types of words I would typically see, and there were probably others, but those really stood out for me. And I thought, there's much to be learned from that experience. Now, we could say that things like ceremony and etiquette are strategies to fulfill needs. You know, we might definitely say that in the nonviolent communication vernacular, that they're strategies and they're fulfilling needs for something else, such as connection with the people who came before us. And we would use that kind of language. But I think we maybe do so at our own peril. What if ceremony and ancestors and knowledge keepers, teachings, etiquette, elders, what if those are needs and that when we don't fulfill those particular needs or engage with those things, ceremony, for instance, when we don't engage in that way, don't we pay a price for that? Don't our ancestors and young people pay a price for that? So for me, this is, this is fascinating. And it led me over to my bookshelf where I pulled out a book by Rupert Ross, and the book is called Dancing with a Ghost, Exploring Indian Reality. Now, Rupert Ross has written several books, and he is a retired assistant crown attorney for the District of Kenora, Ontario, where he used to work closely with the Ojibwe and Cree peoples to make the court system more responsive to the needs of their communities. And he's also written extensively on Native justice issues and speaks regularly at conferences across the country. I'm guessing he's close to 80 years old now. And there was a book that I gifted Marshall Rosenberg with, oh, this would be about 20 years ago. And the book was called Returning to the Teachings, Exploring Aboriginal Justice. Marshall had a deep appreciation for that particular book. And so what I'm going to do is just read an excerpt from the book, Dancing with a Ghost. And in it, Ross is describing an experience he had with his family. My wife, three young children, and I went on a three-day hike into 
Pukasqua National Park on the north shore of Lake Superior. We followed a trail which had been used for more than a hundred years, winding across open rock faces through the dense and silent cedar forests around the edges of swamps and up and down small canyons. As we walked along, I suddenly felt a strange and seemingly contradictory mixture of fear and elation. It came from imagining something I had never let take hold of me before, despite having hiked, hunted, and canoed in many parts of northwestern Ontario, some of which were unquestionably more remote. I imagined that the path, my family and I, were all there really was. I imagined that at the end of the day, there would be no schools, no warm, dry houses, no hospital, no pensions, no clothing stores, no supermarkets. At the end of the trail, there would be no road, no Kenora, no Toronto, no New York, no Tokyo. There would only be more of what I could see around me, stretching off into some boundless infinity of both time and place. There might be other tiny groups of people here and there, other extended families, but they would have no more than I did. My family and I were essentially on our own forever. I had often thought about physical survival in the bush, imagining myself temporarily stranded for one or two weeks until someone found me. Anyone who travels regularly in the north has done the same. I had never, however, really considered what it would feel like if that were a permanent state. Behind my earlier thoughts of survival, I had always taken for granted the presence of the outside world, of the potential it provided both for rescue and for a simple change of scene. Suddenly, imagining a world in which the outside simply did not exist was a shock. In a world where there was nothing but wilderness, there would be nowhere else to go, no other context in which to seek fulfillment. Further, the enterprises of life would not change from generation to generation. Each life would end in a world unchanged from my ancestors' time. My great-great-grandchildren, and theirs in turn, would inhabit exactly the same world and would need the same skills, fight the same struggles, and live lives essentially identical to mine. They would not have a better life than I did, nor would they even have a different one. They would do and be what I had done and been in the same places, in the same ways forever, just as it had always been. This is not the way we think of our lives today, or of life in general. We see ourselves on a road, moving forward, progressing down some linear track that promises constant improvement and discovery from cancer cures to life on Mars. Our eyes are forward. The past is of largely academic interest. The present only an instant we race through to arrive at a different tomorrow. In our belief system, we dedicate ourselves to a single task, creating change. But what if we did not have that conviction underlying our every thought, the conviction that tomorrow, for each of us, if we all work hard, there will be more and better everything? What if our conviction was not that we were born to continue traveling down an infinitely changing road, but instead that our destiny was to repeat what had been done before, to walk in the footsteps of all who had gone before, to think the same thoughts they had already thought? to take in effect their place on the slowly revolving wheel of eternally repeating existence.
What if we defined our lives not as occupying the new ground of our own discoveries, but as revisiting ground already occupied by all our ancestors? Our predominant sense of self would be largely shaped by the conviction that we were going where others had gone before and where others would always go. We would be taking our turn at the wheel of life rather than moving ahead from where others had left off. The shape of existence would be circular, not evolving, but revolving. The past, present, and future would always be essentially the same. Just as the four seasons come, go, and always return again, so too each generation would come and go, never striking out on its own path. Instead, it would retrace the path of the last. Each generation's turn at the wheel might include performances better or worse than those of the last, but they would be essentially the same performances with the same set and script and plotting. To use another analogy, it would be something like a relay race which never ends, each generation passing the baton to the next for its turn around the track, the old and new generations running side by side while the transfer takes place, the older ones slowing as the newer picks up speed. Each would go where the other had already gone, would come to see and hear and think what had already been seen and heard and thought by countless earlier generations. No matter who traveled it or when, the track would be common to all. It is little wonder, then, that the track would become sacred. For it would have been shared by all and have given sustenance to all since time beyond memory, just as it must provide sustenance into the infinite future. This is more than just an emotional tie to the land. The land itself is the tie to the communal past, present, and future. We post-industrial societies, in contrast, seem to run a cross-country relay race passing the baton to a generation that will never set foot upon the ground we have covered, a generation that will not know where we have been, that will never see our footprints. As we pass them the baton and watch them speed away, we have no sense of them visiting where we have been or coming ultimately to where we now rest. They simply go their own way, leaving us guessing about what they will find and about whether they will be equipped to handle it. The more remote their lives become from what we have known, the less confident we feel that we can know and understand them, and the more we are tempted to feel alone and in some fashion unconnected. There may be a synergy of sorts here. The more we cover new ground, the more we feel unconnected to either a familiar past or future then the more we may also feel a pressing need to leave our mark by building or exploring something new, by going further, faster, or higher than anyone has gone before. We may merely be wishing to find some way to erect a sign that says, I was here. But if, by contrast, we did not think that we traveled a new road alone, but an old road worn smooth by our ancestors, would we not be less concerned with such testaments to our presence? Would we have the same preoccupation with what is new, with leaving our singular mark for all to see? Or would we instead find our sense of continuity in the fact that our descendants would not have to look back to know of us, for they would be walking on our trails? The stories about us would not fade because their relevance would not diminish. 
Our lives and the lessons we learned would live on in those stories, a part of our children's lives, as they covered the same ground. In a sense, they would relive our lives as we have relived those of our ancestors, experiencing what we experienced where we experienced it. The only imperative, then, would involve not leaving a monument, but instead an undefiled terrain, as suitable for their use as it was for ours. I don't think that this reading requires any elaboration. We can see that continuity between the generations is something that once was and still is in certain parts and cultures of the world, but certainly in the culture that I live in, it is not here. And my children and my grandchildren are very unlikely to really get where I have been. And I have a hard time getting where they're going. And I consider this to be a deep sorrow because I think that there is some real truth to the fact that what we do need are elders and ancestors and ceremony. And without that, we pay an enormous price. And so do future generations. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous. Thank you.